You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. So, Jane, it'd be great just to... I mean, I think the first question is, like, who are the Quakers and what do they believe? Because I think it would be really helpful to know. But I'm going to put you on the spot and just ask to, for you maybe just to share a bit. I mean, you're talking about your story, aren't you? So actually, yeah, maybe we will start with that. And I'm sure people would just be interested to hear about you and, and yeah, how long you've been in Bath and, yeah, um, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, do you want just... Is there red, the red light? That better? Yes. Um, yes, well, I'm, I'm Jane Stevenson. I uh, live in Poulton, which is near Midsummer Norton, just south of Bath, and I've been a Quaker since 2003. I'm going to say a little bit more about how I got there later. Um, my life has been spent as a, an environmentalist, so I've been, I have had a profession uh, working mostly on waste and recycling issues, uh, running a, a, a non-profit making organisation based in Bristol, which works... UK-wide and globally. And for me, the whole issue of environmental degradation and war and conflict are very interrelated. Amazing. Thank you. So, yeah, do you want, should we start with... Because I think some people here might know Quakers and what, what they believe, but others will just be like, what is a Quaker? Okay. So, yeah, that might be a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Quakers began in the 1650s um, at a time when there was quite a lot of... Uh, non-conformist churches beginning in the UK. Um, it was a quite a troubled time, you know, during just after the Civil War. Um, and it was driven by a conviction that God, everyone has a direct relationship with God. You don't need a priest to have a relationship with God. So that was, that was really where it came from. And... Quakers also have, they have testimonies uh, to equality, simplicity, truth, peace and environmental protection. So they're core to our, the, the way we want to live our lives. And we, want, we also um, ex- try and experience that life through a spirit of love, truth and peace. We don't have a priest. Um, our meetings are not programmed uh, and we sit in silence in a circle waiting for the promptings coming from God or in our, in, you know, our spiritual core um, to give ministry to others. Um, and the word Quakers come because the feeling that you have when you are called to give ministry is sometimes people would you know quite physically quake there is that sort of uh, feeling inside you that you've just got to say something and it it usually arises out of nowhere um so that that's where the term comes from and we're nothing to do with quaker oats <laughs> um so we we have a this this book quaker faith and practice um which gives Details of how we organise ourselves, um, because although we don't have a priest, we do have people within the community who are appointed to roles, but only for uh, set periods of time. Um, And it also um, 
has quite a lot in the book is about the reflections of friends. So there are, there are contributions from friends over the centuries. And these, it is also regularly reviewed and updated, and it's being updated at the moment because things change. And also because people have things to say that they, you know, that, um, that need to be put in the book. So I'm going to read you one of my favourites, um, which dates back to 1667, um, from Isaac Pennington, who some of you may have heard of. Our life is love and peace and tenderness, and bearing one another and forgiving one another, and not laying accusations one against another, but praying for one another and helping one another up with a tender hand. And I think that just sums up to me what we as Quakers are trying to do um, and in many other churches too, but it, I just feel that's a very beautiful way of expressing that. Um, we also um, have a little book, which is, which is contained in here as well, but I couldn't find one to bring along with me, uh, which is called Advices and Queries, and that has questions to, about the way you live your life. Um, and I'm going to read the one that is actually about war and conflict, but it covers every every aspect of life from preparing for your death to issues around relationships um, and, and so on. We are called to live in the virtue of that life and power that takes away the occasion of all wars. Do you faithfully maintain our testimony that war and the preparation for war are inconsistent with the spirit of Christ? Search out whatever in your own way of life may contain the seeds of war. Stand firm in our testimony, even when others commit or prepare to commit acts of violence. Yet always remember that they too are the children of God. So all of these advices and careers are very much directed at you personally about how you deal with situations in life and try and live that in a more spiritual way. Great. Thank you, Jane. So um, could you say a little bit about so um, a meeting then? So do you guys meet like once a week for we, an we, hour? And then is yeah, it? we meet okay. once a week um, at the moment in Manvers Street Baptist Church um, in one of the rooms on the lower floor. And we sit in a circle and we sit in silence. And the I suppose what we're... What one experiences, not every time, but <laughs> when it's working really well, there is a definite sense of a, I can only describe it as a gathered silence of lots of people, which is much more powerful than sitting in silence on your own. And we sit and wait for, and if anybody has that feeling that they want to contribute some ministry, then they stand up and they speak. We have quite, we're quite um, keen that that doesn't then turn into a conversation. So there should be gaps between the ministries to allow that ministry to settle. And then people might, um, that might lead others to, you know, prompt others to say something. But it, it, it's not a conversation, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. Okay. And we, we also have been meeting on Zoom through the pandemic, and we still meet on Zoom as well. So that's quite challenging 
for the people who are organising those because we have to double up on yeah, everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're aware of yeah some of those <laughs> familiar challenges. Yeah. yeah, so great. I mean, it'd be it'd be it'd be wonderful to hear a bit about your own story. So, how, have you always yes. been a Quaker? How did you become a, a Quaker? Yeah, is that, is um, that the right phrase? Do you become a Quaker? Like, <laughs> well, I I first went to a Quaker meeting in two thousand and three, which is you know is quite. I mean, I'm sixty. What am I? Sixty six now. So that's, you know, uh, quite late in life, I suppose. Um, I was brought up in a little town in Nottinghamshire called Newark, uh, surrounded by RAF stations, and there were some barracks in the town when I was a uh, child. And I did go to church with my parents to the C of E church, but there was always a very strong military presence, especially, you know, at any important uh, services. Um, we did have one fa- group, a family friend, a whole family who were Quakers that my parents were friendly with, but we never really taught, I never really got to know what, what that meant or anything about it particularly. Um, as a child, I was very drawn to the teachings of Jesus, um, but I didn't attend church regularly once I became a teenager. I've always had strong leanings uh, towards the protection of the environment and social justice movements. And as I said previously, you know, I've been very actively involved in, in the environmental movement for, well, since the early 80s. Um, but I also uh, was drawn to other things as well. So I went to Greenham Conman a couple of times. I was involved in the campaign to stop the expansion of Hinkley Point Power Station, so things like that. Um, I'd always been aware of a need for some sort of spiritual aspect to my life, I think, even as a child. I've always quite liked sitting and staring out windows and, you know, um, (laughs) being silent, um, and particularly found, I suppose, my spiritual life was enhanced by being in, in nature, so I've always gone for works on my own, and things like that. And I was interested in uh, Taoism in my early 20s, um, as a, just as an interesting area to explore. And when I settled in Bristol in my mid-20s, I got to know a couple of Quakers, some of, two of whom are still very close friends. Um, and I was interested, um, but I didn't voice that aloud really, either to myself or, or to other people. And it was only when I went to the big... There was a very large demonstration against the Iraq war in 2003 in London. Um, and I went there, and I went on a coach from Bath, and I sat next to a, an elderly um, woman who I then discovered was a Quaker, and we just got on like a house on fire. And on the way back... Um, she was very direct. Sadly, she's passed away now, but she was a very direct sort of person. And she just turned to me and said, well, Jane, haven't you ever thought of going to a Quaker meeting? And I pretty much quaked, really, because it was a bit, you know, I thought, oh, gosh, how am I going to answer this? Um, but it didn't, that, that question didn't leave me. So about a month later, when the rest of my family, my husband and children were away, I thought, right, I'm going to go. So I went to Bath meeting and I've been going ever since. Yeah, really. great. Okay. So um, 
obviously it's just great it's great to hear isn't it about Quakers and it's, yeah. it's interesting for us anyway but you know one of the reasons that we've asked you to come is because we're doing this series at the moment sort of mini series that we've been thinking about war yeah. and peace or peacemaking what it means to be a peacemaker um so yeah I think it would be great just to hear and I, I mean I'm aware of some of it but you know I think it's really inspiring actually some of what you're involved in as Quakers when it comes to, yeah. to working for peace so yeah tell us a bit about that what does sort of what do Quakers do to, to work for peace in the world yeah so I'm going to talk in general terms and then we've got another question later on for some examples so I'll, I'll refer you know I'll go into more detail then but um, well Quakers are involved in quite a lot of campaigning um, so um, you know lobbying around disarmament issues and militarism in schools. Um, they also network with other faith communities um, on peace issues, and that is also international. Um, and they collaborate with other peace organisations. So one of the initiatives that we're collaborating with at the moment is called Rethinking Security. Um, we feel that um, over the last few years in particular, um, we're concerned that the government's security policy is almost exclusively focused on um, conflict and war and militarism and def increasing defence spending. And actually, if you just scratch the surface about actually what is making us insecure as a, a country, but also as you know, the whole of humanity... It's things like climate change. It's things like pandemics. It's things like inequalities. It's things like poor housing. So there are a whole load of other issues that if you're talking about the security of everyone, it's not just about, is, is my country going to be invaded? So that's, it's about sparking a conversation. Um, and that is a national um, organisation um, based in Oxford um, and I've brought some leaflets about that because we also have a local rethinking security group. Um, we've started working, it's a very small group, there's about half a dozen of us um, and we started just before the pandemic thinking about going out and talking to people and having conversations with people about what makes them feel insecure in order to be able to capture um, the contributions of people who are not normally spoken to about these sorts of issues. But then the pandemic hit, and of course we couldn't do um, any of that. Uh, we did run a survey for a while, um, but that's closed now, and we are now just beginning to start to think about going out and talking to groups. And we're particularly, we want to talk to groups who are not normally involved in these sorts of discussions because the whole thing needs opening up and yeah. to be a much bigger debate. Okay. Um, Quakers also do a lot in um, education. Um, so we have uh, lots of teachers' packs uh, about peace education and introducing that right from primary right through to secondary schools. Um, we run a programme, or have set up a programme that's now an independent organisation called Turning the Tide, which is about practical peace building for community activists. And we do a lot of, and have done over the years, a lot of reconciliation work. And that's often behind the scenes and very secret, because it's about bringing opposing groups together 
to explore how they can get out of conflict. And I'll talk a bit more of that, about that in the Northern Ireland context later on. Great. Thanks, um, yeah. I wonder if, should we, I think if we skip, I think if we move straight on to that, maybe if you give, okay. give those examples, I think that'd yeah. be good to sort of follow on. So yeah, just I think it would be good, wouldn't it, yeah. just to give some examples of how Quaker peacemaking work sort of made a difference or caused real change, because yeah. sometimes people might not be, I think sometimes, well, some of the stereotype I get around this kind of work is it doesn't really do anything, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So I think it would yeah. be great to hear how yeah. it has. And, so I'm going to talk about three areas. So some work that we're doing in Israel-Palestine, work that's ongoing in East Africa, um, and also the con some conciliation work, particularly looking at uh, the Northern Ireland situation. So in Israel-Palestine, we're part of a programme called the Ecumenic Ecumenical Accompaniment Programme, which is whereby people go um, and are, wit are there to witness... Um, the border posts, really. So I don't know whether you know, but a lot of Palestinians have to cross through security checks in order to either sometimes to access their own land on which they're farming or to go to work. Um, and so it has been a very helpful program to have people to just go and stand as witness in those um, border posts or those posts um, in order to serve as a, a means of reducing potential um, mis abuse, really. Um, uh, so that's something that's been ongoing for a long time. Um, there's a few local Quakers who've done that. Um, you tend to go out for six weeks or so um, and obviously are trained in how to deal with it, you know, because if there is a situation that emerges between a security guard and an individual, then you obviously need to be trained to uh, know what to do with, with, in that situation. So that's one thing which is ongoing. Um, in East Africa, um, the Turning the Tide programme that I referred to earlier um, has, the, there's three countries in Kenya, um, Rwanda and Burundi, um, that <coughs> has been a very important um, means of identifying issues in communities and then helping train activists in peacekeeping activities so that they can resolve whatever the conflict is. And it's not necessarily always a physical conflict. It might be a conflict about a, um, a big project that is going to be built that will displace lots of people. So um, examples there would be in Kenya that this program supported communities to stop a dam being built that was going to displace 50,000 people, and that was successful. Um, in Rwanda, which you know some of you will know, you know, in in not so distant past was you know there was a lot of civil war in Rwanda. Um, there was training provided for 280 young people and they set up peace clubs in their own communities. And really just, yeah, so that was also something that was done. And then um, there's the conciliation work that I, that I was talking about earlier. So during the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, Quaker House Belfast was set up, and that was a safe house for dialogue uh, between the different factions. Uh, there were no formal meeting, there were no papers. They were all held in secret. Um, and I'm going to read you, because uh, this is one of the beauty of this, is that you know, there are 
um, contributions um, from people who have been involved in some of these things. So I'm going to read you um, the contribution. Oh, could you hear me okay before? Yeah. The contribution from Sue Williams and her husband Steve, who were Quaker Peace and Service representatives in Belfast, where they worked for reconciliation in the divided community. Establishing pacifist credentials has taken us collectively a long time and entailed quite some suffering. How can a group without hierarchy or creed demonstrate that it will not participate in war and fighting with outward weapons? Only when individuals, one after another, across time and space, live out their convictions so that choices made in different situations still seem to come together as a pattern. Amazingly, we are now widely known as people who will not fight in wars. Not only this, we are almost as widely known for having intervened in wars to try to alleviate suffering on all sides. Beyond the notion of pacifism, the situation here has lent a special urgency to our reputation for harmlessness. By this, I mean that as a friend, I am not only unwilling to serve as a soldier, but unwilling to take up arms in my private capacity. This may not sound like much, but it puts me in a special relationship to political leaders here. They believe that I will not kill them, and they don't believe that of everyone they meet. More to the point, they accept that I don't want them dead, even when I disagree with them. And this, too, is something that they cannot take for granted. It is surprisingly freeing for all of us. I'm sure they don't want to kill me either, so I feel free to agree with them sometimes, disagree others, without worrying about who else I agree or disagree with in the process, and taking for granted that neither of us wishes to kill the other. Um, and I just, I think that's quite powerful, really. Mm. Um, and I've, I've got a quote here from um, Mo Molam, who was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland during the, during the Troubles. And she came, to, she came to speak at Friends House, which is the, the National Quaker building on Euston Road in London. They, that's Quakers, did an incredible amount in a house where everyone knew they could be trusted. I wouldn't have been able to talk to such a cross-section of people except for being able to meet in that house. They told me who to listen to. Without them, my life would have been much tougher than it was. So that's the sort of work that when it's actually <coughs> ongoing, when it's not a historical thing, you won't ever hear about. Um, and Quakers have done similar work in Sri Lanka, um, and South Africa and are currently doing work in East Asia. So it's the sort of silent stuff that happens in the background but is actually really important. Yeah, and that's really powerful, isn't it? Because when you think about peacemaking, I don't know, I've just got this like, you know, demo protest yeah. kind of, <laughs> and yeah. actually some of that is, in, is important, but I think it's really fascinating yeah. to hear how much is happening behind the scenes, yes. unseen, unheard. That's actually sometimes the stuff that causes the most change. So I think yeah. that's something encouraging maybe for those of us that, you know, perhaps are quieter or feel like, oh, this isn't the sort of stuff that we want to, you yeah. know, get loud about, but there's other yeah. ways to get loud, isn't there? So, yeah. yeah. 
okay. And um, I'm I'm mindful of time, and I want to oh, know yes, that people sorry. are going to have loads of questions for yeah. you. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna probably ask w- probably one, maybe two more. Um, I'd love to just know. I mean, I know you've been involved in things like demos mm. and protests, mm. and I'd love just to hear. You know, what have you kind of ha- what have those experiences been like for you, and what have you learned through participating in them? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is probably to say that I don't actually really like crowds. So <laughs> it took me a while to sort of reconcile that. And so I don't go to big music festivals. You know, I don't go to Glastonbury like the rest of my family do. But, um, but my experience of being on demos, either for the peace movement or environmental demos, is they've been very well organised, jolly, peaceful, positive generally excellent relationships with the police who are there to make sure that it happens peacefully. Um, And I find it a way of, a means of showing solidarity. Um, There is training available. I haven't been any myself about passive resistance because, you know, particularly some of the the XR demos, for example, nowadays, you know, people are almost wanting to be arrested and and that's... um, yeah, you have to know how to handle that. You know, if you're going and you want to be arrested, then you've got to make sure you you don't react badly um, and that you do it in a very passive way. Um, I've also been to uh, demonstrations. There's a big arms fair in London every two years, um, and we've been and held we've held meetings for worship in the entrance, and and have been um, moved on by police. Um, but that's been very powerful just standing in a circle silent in the face of, wow. uh, you know, what's going on in the, the building behind you. Um, but they're not for everyone. You know, they're not for everyone. And they're not the only way um, to get engaged. So, you know, there's lots of ways. You can write to your MP, to local councillors. You can actually just join a campaigning organisation and pay some subs and, you know, help the cause without having to do very much at all. Yeah. <coughs> you can... Uh, Come to our peace vigil. We have a peace vigil every Saturday morning, 11.30 till 12.30 outside Bath Abbey. Some of you may have seen us there. Talking to your friends and family, opening up the debate. I mean, things like this are just as important as going on a protest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. So last question for me before we take a bit of a break to hear your questions. Um, What are the tools in a peacemaker's toolkit? Uh, Well, we've talked about campaigning. Mm -hmm. I mean, another one that isn't, often thought about that in my view is really important is what what where do you put your money you know ethical finance so do you consider you know putting your money in banks that don't invest in the arms trade or tobacco or you know any of the other things that you might not want to so you know we happen to have a very good local uh, it's based in bristol triodos bank they have current accounts um, but also think about your pensions. You know, where's that sitting? There are ethical pension funds that you can choose. <clears throat> uh, research, in, you know, actually providing research, doing providing information to people, networking and collaborating. I've talked about as similarly with education um, in schools and in communities, and the mediation and reconciliation work. All those things one can get involved in as a local, you know, as an individual in lots of different ways. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Thanks, Jane. So it might be that 
pick up on other questions later if we've got time yeah. but we're going to yeah. take a, Sorry, a, a no no it's all like really good stuff so no thank you thank yeah. you for putting so much um, time into your answers yeah. as well no it's re really interesting um so i think what we'll do is we'll I, on your table you'll notice you've got some little pieces of paper and some um so first of all uh jane are there disagreements or conflicts that arise within the group itself in terms of quakers and if so how do you handle these Got it. Yeah. Yeah, of course, because <laughs> we're human. Um, we have, if it's a personal issue, uh, we have some mechanisms for dealing with that. So we have uh, a structure which we call meetings for clearness. So if somebody has got an issue with another person or with something within the meeting that they want to have a more formal way of hearing then they can ask for a meeting for clearness and usually two people will be appointed and the person they they those two people will ask the person questions in a way that tries to draw out from them actually what it is that's really troubling them um, if it's more deeper conflicts within the society it takes time, you know. I mean, I go, I mean, so, you know, we have, we do have differing opinion on policy, for example. I mean, we, we agree, we started talking about same-sex marriage in the 1950s, but it took us till the 70s to have a united view across the whole society that this was something we should support. So, I'm not, you know, we... And, and Quakers sometimes are criticised for not being so good at conflict within themselves. Because yeah. um, it is hard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, and somebody said, are there many young people engaging with the Quaker movement? How do you see the future of the Quakers? We are, like most churches, an ageing uh, population. We do have young people. We do have um, a, a separate... Um, organisation called Young Friends who are very active and they attend all our national meetings and also um, have activities for themselves we have a children's meeting at the moment we don't have a children's meeting in our meeting because we've only very recently got back to meeting in person um, but that's certainly the intention um, so we are very encouraging of young people to join but we are it's a challenge for us, as a lot of the older established churches, in attracting younger people. Um, and that's something we're, we're trying to grapple with. Okay, thank you. And yeah, any, other, any other sort of thoughts on, you know, the future of the Quaker movement? Well, I think that's the, you know, that is the biggest yes, challenge, that we're dying out, you know. Um, and that, that is a challenge. So we're putting a lot more effort nationally into supporting local meetings and we've got regional development workers that have been recently employed to help meetings grow we've got lots of uh things happening with meetings merging sometimes and how we organize trying to simplify the way that the church is organized um to try and get rid of some of the committee structure and stuff like that, which can make it quite a bit impenetrable. Yeah. 
Um, but they're things that are happening throughout um, a lot of religious societies in, in the UK. Well, I'm probably... I mean, where Quakers are really growing is East Africa. So there well, are far more Quakers in Africa than there are in any other country in the world. Mm. So Kenya has the biggest population of Quakers. They do think they, but they don't. They they do things in a slightly different way, and Quakers in um, America do things in a quite quite different way. Some of them they have more programmed meetings. Okay. Thank you. So um, a big theme that came out in lots of people's questions was this idea of defence, so whether it's kind of self-defence or, you know, defence on a larger scale with obviously what we're seeing in, in the Ukraine at the moment. Um, and I know that obviously, you know, that pacifism is something that's known within the Quaker movement, but I, I guess, yeah, that's kind of the, it'd be interesting to know what are your thoughts on, yeah, like, you know, if someone someone comes into your home and tries to attack you or somebody, you know, what, what would, should somebody do in that situation? What's the Quaker view on self-defence, but then perhaps moving more to that, that kind of larger sense of, of defence and how Quakers would view defence or defending mm. when it comes to violence. Yeah, it's, it's, look, it's the most difficult time to talk about peacemaking and peace building when there's a war going on. Um, but the Quaker view really is that we need somehow to stop the... the the problem is that whilst we're all armed up to the hilt, then w war becomes almost inevitable when you have a conflict situation. And the way I try to look at it is that at, a, at an individual level, we no longer as a society tolerate violence between individuals. We don't tolerate violence between communities. You know, I mean, where I live, you know... Uh, hundred years ago, there would be sort of gangs between the villagers and they, you know, the young men would go out and beat each other up. We don't tolerate that anymore. You know, we don't have um, freedom to bear arms in this country. Um, and I don't see why we can't hope and work for a situation where that is also not tolerated between countries. Um, in terms of my own, I, haven't, I, have, I have never been attacked, personally. So I can't truthfully say to you how I would react in that situation. But I think, it, I, I wouldn't be carrying a weapon in the first place, so if somebody attacked me, my only defence would be to try and talk them out of it, or to run away but I wouldn't have the means to harm them other than kicking them or, you know, um, but, but not, in a, not in a way to kill anybody. Um, and I feel that in war... I mean, there's a very good book. I don't know if any of you read it. Um, Humankind. Has anybody read Humankind? It's a sort of analysis of the human... What, what is our human... What is our, our basic instinct? Is it to fight each other? Or is it actually to work collaboratively and to be kind to each other? And there's lots and lots of evidence that even in a time of war, the basic instinct is naturally not to kill. You know, there is evidence that a lot of soldiers, when they're actually in the firing line, they shoot into the sky. They don't shoot to kill. Now, obviously, that doesn't have, that, that's not universal because otherwise we would have no dead people. But it's, 
we have to we have to change this paradigm and we can only do that by preparing for peace rather than preparing for war we um last i mean because we've been thinking about this for a few weeks and we yeah. we talked last week there's a, a book that i mentioned by a guy called walter wink called the powers the bee and um walter wink describes this idea of the third way that kind of Jesus teaches mm. that very often we make this choice but we have to make a choice between mm. blind submission or violent resistance mm. and that a lot of kind of the ways that Jesus acted was creating this kind of third way of like there's always this kind of third option yeah um, I mean there are also examples I mean I forget which oh dear I think it was in Indonesia somewhere but I mean don't quote me on that I can't remember which country it was but some nuns basically just there were some tanks rolling into the village or town and they just walked out in front of the tanks and gave the soldiers um, flowers and they didn't shoot them mm. you know there are other ways it takes a, a lot of courage yeah. so you know being a pacifist is not about being a coward it's actually more courageous in times of war to be re renouncing violence than it is to um, do as you told mm. you know um, and there are examples as well of countries that have turned their back on militarism. So Costa Rica is 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 the most um, uh, known um, country where they they actually positively got rid of their military in 1949. They have the highest um, standard of living in all of Central America, and they they're renowned for their environmental protection laws and you know the tourist industry and you know they've they've they have managed a way not to do that now of course we are you know one of the big powers in the UK we have a uh, sorry in the world you know we have a seat at the security council we're a nuclear um, we have nuclear arms etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's going to take a lot of work for us to change that but that's where I feel we should be putting the effort. Yeah, and I think there's something, like you said, there's really, something really powerful about not preparing for war, but preparing yeah. for peace, that actually if we put more resources and you know into yeah. into this kind of idea you know of training of like reconciliation of showing people how to do that even on a personal level yeah you know for, for right from a young age you can see that having a massive impact then when yeah. it comes to people that are kind of in government or making those decisions and have got those skills around yeah. reconciliation or conflict resolution yeah to stop it from escalating sort of almost before it gets there yeah yeah. I mean, it, I, I recognise it's problematic saying, you know, what do Quakers think about this in the way that sometimes when people say, mm. what do Christians think about this? And you think, well, how long have you got? Because we all think different things. Yes. But, but are there sort of, um, you know, maybe talk a bit more about the Ukraine sort of Russia situation. Are there things that Quakers are trying to do to help around that conflict? And what particularly is the view around us providing like weapons for defence and things like that? Well, I guess our, um, our view about providing weapons is that's just going to lead to more people dying, actually. What about um, if they're just defensive weapons, like well, the kind of, you know, the missiles? What's that... a defensive weapon? Mm. What's a weapon that's defensive that doesn't kill people? I can't think of one. Mm. Um, and, I mean, unless we are really uh, thinking of taking on Russia, which I... I'm not really quite sure what the, what the next leader of the um, you know the uh, the country is going to do about this, but mm. um, I mean that's just that would just be catastrophic, you know. And and we have we, I think we forget. I mean, this is why it's so difficult to talk about because it's very difficult to talk about without 
seeming to be an apologist for what Russia has done. Um, <clears throat> and that isn't, that isn't the case at all. But don't let us forget that those Russian soldiers are conscripts. The Ukrainian soldiers are virtually conscripts because they're not allowed to leave the country as a young man. So um, it, it's just a horrible situation, but what we see is just death and destruction. And adding more fuel to that fire doesn't seem to me to be a very good idea. We have, at the end of the day, to sit, they have to sit round a table. And the more we have bellicose language about what should be done, the more unlikely that is going to be. So, you know, it's better to try and dampen down mm. fires rather than stoke them. So even providing weapons, you feel, is like, you know, escalating yeah. it rather than, yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. Okay. Um, there is, sorry, I should just yeah, say, I mean, um, I know we're going to say it this end, but just so, so I don't forget it. Um, we are going to send around something with some links, and there's quite a lot on the Quaker website, um, <clears throat> you know, with articles uh, about the Ukrainian situation. And we, have, we do have Quakers in Ukraine that are being supported in terms of, you know, trying to have dial, you know, just trying to work for peace within their own country. And historically, there are lots of ways that Quakers work, individual Quakers work in a war situation. You know, during the Second World War, um, the Friends Ambulance Service was very active and a lot of conscientious objectors who would not take, would not join the military were, did work um, in that capacity and helping refugees. You know, this, I mean, we, you know, Quakers were very involved in the whole kinder transport issue. So there are lots of ways that you can work in a conflict situation mm. without taking up arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah, there's uh, Jane's put together a really helpful kind of um, information, sort of, I'd say, leaflets of just a great document full of links and things. So we'll include that in community news because there's lots of places to go and find out more about what Quakers are doing mm. um, and, yeah, particularly around Ukraine, Russia as well. Um, great. So... Last question, again, another theme from a few questions. I think people are just interested to hear a little bit about perhaps your, your kind of personal relationship with God. So what does that yeah. look like? So many of us have, you know, practices that we, you know, do, do you pray, do you read the Bible? Sort of, yeah, what, what does your kind of faith look like for you personally? Um, I suppose I try and build in some quiet time into my day. That doesn't always happen, and I don't know. I don't particularly call that praying, but I think it probably, you know, for many people, it's the same thing. Um, when faced with a big dilemma about, you know, anything personal or how I'm reacting to outside things, I try and sit with that for a while, and I suppose that I'm sort of. Uh, looking for some deep insight, which that's my, the way that, that's what I think is the God in me, uh, um, how I, re, you know, relate to, to God and the wider, because um, I always, I mean, I always think of God as having, it's, it's, it's about taking one out from oneself and trying to put, have a much, much broader context. And you sometimes need time to um, engage with that in a, in a deep way. So 
I feel, I mean, I feel compelled to speak out on lots of issues that I see as injustices. Um, but that comes from a very deep level, at a very deep level. And I try to be guided by that. Um, and is what about the Bible? Is that something that Quakers kind of use? Or? Um, we have, we have a, so when we sit in a circle, we have a table in the middle and we have this, Quaker Faith and Practice, but we also have several versions of the Bible. Um, I, I used to read the Bible a lot, I think I said as a child. I don't really read it now. Um, I do dip into this. And quite funny, when I sometimes I just open it. And when I opened it this morning, when I was thinking about, well, should I do a reading, it fell open on that page about the Belfast ministry. And I, I, so that's just extraordinary. Well, I found that quite extraordinary because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I didn't look for that passage. That just yeah. came. Great. So I don't know yeah. where that's coming <laughs> from, but, you know, some people would say that's, yeah, that's some external, um, yeah. you know. Great. So we, we're kind of we've run over already. So yeah. Just but I, I just wanted to, I know that there might be there's lots of things that we could carry on talking about, isn't there? But is there anything that you feel like oh, I really wanted to say that and I've not managed to, or anything just finally that you want to say before we finish? Um, I suppose a couple of things that I haven't mentioned. I mean, I think demilitarisation is really important, um, and we have to find ways of using. You know, there are lots of ways we could use the technology in for better means you know in terms of um clean technologies for you know we could use that brain power for things other than devising the next lethal weapon and there were there is a case and i'm afraid i've forgotten the name of the company but it goes back to the 50s where uh the trade union movement in this company this military company um came up with a plan an alternative plan of how to use the technology and to completely move out of um, producing weapons. And it was a really well-argued business plan and it was all about developing wind, wind energy technology and it was just completely you know, uh, pushed aside and not even really taken seriously. Um, and these big, complex international problems mean that we have to reform the United Nations. The United Nations was formed to create the conditions for peace following the Second World War. We have to look at reforming the Security Council. You know, the Security Council is dominated by nuclear powers who have no interest whatsoever in giving up that weaponry, despite the fact there is now a treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons that was passed by the United Nations 18 months ago. So, you know, we that takes a lot bigger brains than me to think about how that might be done. But that's the sort of thing we should be putting our energies into. Okay. Great. Thank you, Jane. Well, hopefully, like I said, I'm, I'm sorry that we haven't managed to get through all the questions, but yeah, do um, do come and chat to Jane at the end if there's any that you, you're really burning to, to ask. But perhaps we could just give Jane a round of applause for, for joining us this morning. Well, and thank, and thank you. You know, it's, it's been a pleasure to come here and thank you for your questions as well because, you know, they are quite deep things that you're, we're having to tussle with. Definitely. Know.
Yeah, and hopefully the start of, and we've already been chatting about maybe if there's kind of things we can work together on, particularly around some of the, the activism or peacemaking stuff that's done locally. So, um, yeah, watch this space, I think. And yeah, like I said, in community news next week, we'll send out um, the handout that Jane's prepared, which has got lots of resources and, and things to kind of fill up. There's a lot that I want to go and Google and have to do a bit of research on. So it's just like all Sundays, it's the start of something, isn't it? It's the start of a conversation. It's the start of um, a journey and, you know, more more work to be done, more research to be done. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a really helpful beginning for us so thank you jane you're listening to a podcast from oasis church bath to find out more about us visit our website at www.oasisbath.org